I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Chapter 3. A Date for the Diary. November 2003. How can a battery last this long? Thought James. How can a simple AA battery power the ticking of a clock every second of every minute of every day for more than four years? He thought to himself that the clock was a liar, that its unchanging beat was a misrepresentation of how he knew time to travel. The battery had a simple life, the clock a simple purpose. He was almost envious of them both. The latter's metronomic clicks were the only noise in the house, though he didn't know if they were soothing or otherwise. He tried to match his breathing to their strokes. Two ticks in, two ticks out. Two ticks in, two ticks out. That, at least, helped him keep his mind from the smell. He was sitting in his coat on the floor, in the dark and cold of his long-abandoned living room, perpendicular to the window so that his legs ran along the bay and his back rested against the edge of the sofa next to it. And, despite or because of his many mounting strands of depression, he kept drifting in and out of sleep. But Christ, it stank. The air seemed alive with stench, as though it were wriggling with microscopic maggots all vying to shoot up his nostrils. He'd just drift off, managing to catch a few minutes of slumber before a fresh micron would register in the back of his throat and he'd splutter awake again. He wondered if it had been worth returning. These senseless trips back south did nothing for his sanity, only furthering and worsening obsessions that he'd now held for almost a decade. Four years had passed since he had finally driven Laura away. Four long years of inactivity, punctuated only by two stupid visits back to London, back to this strange museum of his former life. But he wouldn't see her this time. He wouldn't dare. Not after what had happened the year before some old woman chasing him down for something he'd sooner not think about. It was too risky. No, today was about one thing and one thing only, and it would arrive soon enough. 
When he closed his eyes, the details of the room remained, but he saw Laura inside. She was sitting at the kitchen table, messily eating her morning cereal, and she was lying on the floor with a hangover. She was somewhere deep in a book, the sofa cushions arranged to prop her up just so, and she was changing his furniture, slowly removing his boyishness from the place. She was moving everywhere around the room, fueled by his fading memories of their time together. And then, he'd open his eyes again, and everything returned to how it was in mid-1999. Everything except the smell. At about 3pm, he was awoken by a noise coming from downstairs. His letterbox had clapped and rattled, and the afternoon post had tumbled down to the floor with a muffled thump. This was it. This was why he had returned. He dragged himself to his feet and walked with trepidation to the doorway, closing his eyes as he skulked past the barricaded room on the landing and onto the stairs. At their base, by the front door, was a small brown parcel. It had arrived. His memory hadn't failed him. Then why, after having travelled nearly five hundred miles, couldn't he bear to pick it up? In a way, the very fact that it had arrived was a gut punch. Its existence in his house meant that the course of most things had gone unaltered. It meant that all the interim events, his father's distant whereabouts and passing, the comings and goings of others, and even the life of the postman who'd carried the parcel to James's door, had occurred as they were supposed to just as they did last time, and that made the fact that he'd fucked things up with Laura so much harder. He picked the thing up as one might wrangle a snake, as if it had intentions of biting his hand. Then he held it tight to his chest, opened the door and left, locking it tightly behind him and trotting into the street. It was blustery, and he became worried that he might lose the parcel to the gale, so he slipped it into his coat pocket and charged as quickly as he could to the tube station, where everyone looked suspect, and he felt watched. He imagined that all the people around him on the escalators, and the platform, and inside the tube carriage were secret agents, whispering into their lapels the report having spotted him. It did not put him at ease. But soon enough he was at King's Cross, and he was slipping between groups of people, in such a way and such a speed, that he might lose anyone who might be following he was able to jump on the four o'clock service to Edinburgh, which meant no waiting and little time to think and panic. There would be more than enough of that once the train had departed. It was only when the train had departed that he dared pull the parcel from his inside pocket. He had a bank of four seats to himself with a table, so he placed the package on the surface in front of him to examine its packaging. He wanted to pay attention to the things he'd not the last time. Back then, he had torn the book from its wrapping and discarded it to the bin, never looking at it again. This time he wanted to soak up every fold, every crease in the paper, the bite marks on every strip of tape. He savoured everything about it, this thing which had started it all, which had doomed him, and which had become his only obsession. Finally, he ventured to peel one end of the paper free of itself, exposing the top of its contents. He held it aloft, and upside down so the book slid out of the opening and caught it with his free hand. Then he pulled it up to his nose and breathed in deeply. The familiar waft of leather and smoke and agedness bounced amongst his synapses. 
Melancholy and nostalgia fought for a position at the front of his mind, and by the time he had brought the book down into focus in front of him, he could feel tears covering his eyes like a lens, waiting for him to blink them all free. He looked up and down the length of the train to see if anyone nearby could see, as though some spectacular scandal would leap from the pages, and finally opened it. As expected, a folded piece of pale blue paper came loose from the flap on the inside back cover. He opened it up on the tabletop and ran a hand over the words as he read. Dear James, first of all, before all other things, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not being there for you. I'm sorry because I do not know who or what you are. I do not know what you can, have, or are yet to do, nor if you even know these things yourself yet. And in any case, I left it far too late to try and find out. All I know is that you were born in a moment of absolute darkness, and that I was once saved in that same darkness. I have left you the attached in the hopes that you can make sense of it, and of us. I can only hope that it goes some way to explain my, well, my neglect of you over these horrid years. I've been confused by you, I think, and I let that confusion cloud my actions, for which I will always be sorry. I will see you when I see you, in some fresh moment of darkness. Your father. Philip. It had taken four years, but James finally had it back. The book that had lost him his marriage, and which had deftly ruined his entire life. So why was he so glad to have it in his possession once more? It felt like a part of him, strangely. It felt like a lost limb had miraculously grown anew. He wondered if this is what Stockholm Syndrome might feel like. But he had to stay sane. This wasn't the place. There would be plenty of time to pour over its pages again, plenty of time to look for clues as to how to proceed. The train gently tilted over to one side as it rounded a corner, speeding him farther, farther from everything, and he began to relax. He pulled a pen and some paper from his coat, flattened the letter against the train table, and began scratching the former over it. The first thing he wrote, as always, was, Dear Laura. But this time, instead of stopping and scrunching the paper into nothingness, he felt a need to continue. He dragged the pen back and forth over Laura's name to scribble it out, and rewrote, Loz, beside it, and then began to pour his heart all over the page. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In a quiet cul-de-sac in London, a computer had sprung to life. A light had begun to flash into the darkness of a murky room. That was how she woke. Without a start, or a jump, or anything remarkable to mark it as a night of any particular note, other than the rhythmic breathing of an electronic notification. And that was how it started. A light averring its existence. A sleep ended. It was late afternoon, and white sunlight was doing its level best to break into the room, through a slew of punctured holes, into the blind above her head. She stank. She could smell her own rife musk in the air, and she hated herself for it. Another fucking day had fucking arrived, funneling cold air into her nostrils, ruffling the flakes of skin around her nose and salting their rawness. She rose from the futon and stepped towards the computer, sitting down heavily for someone with such a small frame. Hello, Maggie, it read. She inputted her password slowly, with only her index fingers. LOGAN. ALL CAPS. The light belonged to a piece of software that would fire whenever a beam of light on an associated sensor had been sufficiently broken. She had installed it several years ago in the dead of night, fixing the sensor, which was about the size of a large box of matches, above the front door of a private residence in Highgate. The beam, facing straight down, would be broken by the door opening or closing, or, as was the case more than once, by the movements of a particularly rotund and gesticulatory postman. Other than that, the thing had never triggered, so Maggie had all but forgotten about it, save for occasionally having to change its batteries 
when the computer software beeped at her. She had assumed that this was simply one of those alerts, a please-can-you-change-my-battery alert, but it wasn't. This was genuine. The beam had been broken by something. She closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and leaned back in the chair, creaking both its plastic hinges and the coils in her back. Travelling to Highgate from Bermondsey would be arduous and pointless if she discovered that her sensor had simply malfunctioned, or if it had been roused by a cat or a fox, or a discarded takeaway box pushed about in the wind. But when she opened her eyes, and when her only good pupil focused on the pictures and maps and notes pinned to the wall above the computer screen, she knew what she had to do. She took stock of a photograph of her father that hung askew and half-covered, he was young and dressed in his army garb, and he looked worried, as if he knew what would eventually happen to him. Maggie peered into his eyes, those of a fearless hero, and they told her that she had to go, that doing so might bring her closer to mapping the whole thing out, that it might help put an end to things. Okay, she said. Okay, father. I shall go to the fucker's house again. She drove, not wanting to sit idly on tube trains staring at her hands. The act of driving would give her enough to think about so that she might not fixate on too much. She was growing tired of it now, all the thinking, just trying to connect the dots which may or may not exist. James Logan's father was the only person to know what had happened to hers. James Logan would know things, he'd have answers for her, and if he truly was at his house again... For whatever reason, he'd not be able to weasel his way out of her probing again. The mysterious Logan boy would have many answers for many questions, and that was all she could think about. It took her forty minutes to get there, by which point a headache had crept along her brow from somewhere behind the left temple, engulfing her senses and causing her to slow to a crawl as she turned the last few corners. It was a hangover only it was dull, and worse somehow than normal. There was an immense frustration at having to travel so slowly towards something that required such urgency. But it was all for naught. There was no signs of anything being different here, no answer as she knocked, and she knocked violently, in shifts, for some time. The sensor above the door had been triggered by something, but James Logan was not home. Maybe that was for the best, this false alarm might be the final nail in an already bolted coffin. Maybe, she thought, the chase should be given up entirely. And then, mouse-like and shaky, there was a voice. Are you James's mother? Maggie turned to her left and saw the neighbouring door slightly ajar, a pair of eyes peering from the dark behind them. Are you James's mother? I thought you were dead, dear. She examined this little old woman in silence, unsure what was happening or how really to respond. The door remained open only by a hair, as if the neighbour thought she were a would-be intruder. Instinctively, Maggie put a hand inside her jacket pocket and pushed down on her dictaphone until she felt the tape whir into life to record. No. Maggie issued. No, I'm not his mother. I am a friend, though. Have you seen him? Is he here? You tell him to cut those trees of his, please. I'm sorry? You tell him to cut, to cut those trees. 
They're into my garden now. They're a mess. You tell him that. I will when I see him, but I'm afraid I don't know where he is. Well, he was here this morning, the woman said, sounding as though James Logan being at his own house were a crime of some description. Oh, really? Yes, yes, he was here. I saw him come in. He looked terrible, stressed. Anyway, you tell him to cut those trees. And then the door slammed shut, and Maggie Hollis's mind flooded with the mania of newfound purpose. Dear Loz, I suppose we never actually got to the point where I called you Loz this time round, did we? I don't think you ever liked the name anyway. To be fair, I think you once told me that it made you sound too young. You dragged me to one side after I'd called you Loz in front of your work colleagues to tell me so, and I remember thinking, Jesus, this is our first fight. Not our last, though. Far from it. I know that none of this will make any sense to you. I know that. We went on a shit date once years back, and then you got on with your life. You may even have seen other men in the interim between now and then. The thought of which makes me sick, though I know it's only fair, I suppose. But here's the thing, Loz. It didn't go like that. Not really. For me, everything from that first date onwards was a whirlwind, a real whirlwind. We were in each other's pockets, you and I. You moved into mine four months to the day after that first date in August, and that's where you stayed until, well, maybe it's better if you don't know. We were married last year, in June. Your dad got too drunk, as he does, and he fell into the bank of chairs just off the dance floor. But he was okay. Tom told me that he was proud to have me as a brother. You looked beyond incredible, and I told you as such over and over. It was the happiest day I've had, and I've had more than my share. But then my dad passed away, and he left me his diary, and I ruined everything, and I let it ruin me, and that ruined us. There were months, Loz, months where I wouldn't leave the house for doing drawings and diagrams and plotting charts and trying to figure out what it all meant, but I never could. And the thing I really should have been trying to figure out was how to keep us on the right path. I went mad, I think, mad in a ruinous way. And when I close my eyes, I can still imagine you wincing and having to tell your friends that I was fine, just busy with work. Sorry, he couldn't make it. You'd say he swamped with work, and then you'd come home and cry in the other room. And you know what's the worst of it? I could hear you cry. I would be sat on the floor amid piles of books and scribbles, and I could hear your sobs coming through the wall. And I didn't do anything. For that, I am more sorry than you can imagine, because it is impossible to imagine being this sorry all the time. To have sorry become your default, to have sorry punctuate every simple act. 
to clean your teeth and be sorry for how horrid you were, to be drinking water in floods of tears at your own actions. And then for what happened to have happened because of all that and to be suddenly, instantly given the chance to do it all over again and to fuck it up. Christ, there's no pain like that loss. I shall be 35 soon. Can you believe that? I'm both older and younger than I should be, and I'm terrified by what's to come and when. None of this will make sense to you. It barely does to me. But I just want you to know that in the face of it, I won't give up. Not because I think there's any chance of us moving back to how it was, but because I'm worried about you. I don't know much about all this stuff, but I know I need to keep you safe. And for that reason, I will see you again in two years' time. All my love, JL. The train slowed to a chug as it pulled towards its destination. James stood in the corridor by the doors, sandwiched by his fellow commuters, holding onto the rail. He was weak from having not eaten, and only now realising it. With his free hand he reached inside his coat and pulled the letter, which he had signed and put away an hour or so before. He read through his words and broke into something nearing a smile. His jumbled words were laughable now. I don't know much about all this stuff, but I know I need to keep you safe. And for that reason, I will see you again in two years' time. It was a promise to no one, he realised. And, moreover, he discovered that, somehow, he'd written the letter not on a fresh scrap, but on the back of one written by his father, on the back of the blue paper warning him about what was to come. His smile turned over on itself, and he huffed at his own stupidity. Acting on impulse, James scrunched the paper into a ball and pushed it into the bin to his left, only to see it be promptly squashed down further by a fellow passenger's coffee cup, its sentiment lost forever. It was for the best, thought James. He knew his father's words by heart, after all. And besides, whilst he certainly would see Laura again, he reasoned that she did not need to know as such ahead of time. Sunday, September 17th, 1941. I awoke to blistering heat, the sun over Libya ferocious and white, so much so that even in the shade of the plain, I was sinfully hot for much of the day. I caught my wrist on a piece of the wing frame, and it was almost melting. It left me with a vivid purple burn mark, to add to the collection of various scrapes and bruises. We had enough water on board to last maybe a couple of days if we're smart, but the temptation to pour it all over oneself was intense for much of the afternoon. 
There's also a bottle of dark rum on board which survived the crash. Small mercies. I slept until what I gathered was around midday. The pain and the sheer shock of it all sent me under the night before, and it's almost funny now how little I remember of penning the last entry in this book. It's all a drunken stupor. Right now it's nearly night again, the pitch black net having dragged itself across the sand for the second time, giving some respite, though there's really no comfortable temperature here. It's either too hot or too cold, with around thirty minutes in the middle per morning and night of something approaching pleasant. And it's been quite a day today, I have to report. Hollis has been in and out of consciousness, as have I, though he's now passed out once again. The pain seems to have gotten to him. I split some of the rum with him, which I thought necessary to ease his symptoms. For most of the day we've been huddled in the shade on opposing sides of the plain, because the inside is too patchy with holes and far too hot, like a greenhouse. It's his legs I'm worried about now. It seems from the talks we had today that he knows what's going on, that he is still Sean Hollis, but the state of the lower half of him is something to behold. His left knee has shattered, so that the shin and foot sit further forward than they ought to. I dare say the other leg is only hanging on by a thread. And the pain found him this afternoon, finally. While yesterday he could only muster a tear and a few nonsensical words, today he's been cursing a blue storm and wailing. And that, perhaps, is why he keeps asking me to kill him. At what must have been late afternoon, I woke again to hear him calling my name, though it was more of a bark. Logan! 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 I rose and ferreted around the plane, flying jacket wrapped around my head to shield from the scorching sun, to find him fruitlessly trying to drag himself to his feet. Logan, I need you to end me, man. I remember that wording vividly. End me. As if he were a spent task waiting to be filed away. Something about it frightened me. I told him I wouldn't, plainly, instead trying to broker some calm with the rum. It didn't work, exactly. He took several deep swigs, deep enough that I would have told him not to hog it were his legs not so obviously ruined, and asked me again. This time, though, it was less the howling of a desperate man, and more a negotiation of sorts. Before I go on, I should like to make clear, should someone find this diary after we've died, that I'm not out to dirty Sean Hollis's reputation. I'm simply documenting what happened. In part, this is to give me something to fill the hours with while we wait to either find rescue or die. But I also present the details of what happened with the caveat that Hollis is in a tremendous amount of pain, no doubt, so his musings are not unfounded. Look at me, Phil, he demanded. Look at my legs. Look at the situation we're in here. Where do you gather we are, exactly? Some miles out, I said. It was all I could think to. He balked. Some miles out? We're in abject nowhere, and I can't bloody stand, much less walk.
I told him we'd be rescued. Seventy Squadron would know we'd not returned, and they'd send pilots out on the hunt, I said. I assured him we'd be found, that we'd be okay, but he had an answer to everything. This desert is too big, he said. Even if they fly the same route, they'd miss us. And how long before you, me and the plane are so covered in sand that we're completely invisible? No, no, we won't be found here, I think. We've got the flare, I said. They're not coming, he shot back. They'll need to, if they have to, I offered. I'd wager they don't bother, not after the run we did. And in that he may be right. The mission, if you can call it that, was a walk in the park. We flew in the dead of night, released the payload and permanently grounded several Italian planes in a matter of moments. Job done. But our engine failure took hold not long after, so I imagine we might be too near their airfield to risk rescue, which is a bleak thing to think on for too long. They won't risk coming this far out again, Sean said. Not for two flyboys and a down vicar's fucking Valencia. He then flopped onto his side and winced, and something in me wondered if maybe I should put him out of his misery. As if sensing what I was thinking, he peered up through the pain and said, If I were a dog or a lame horse, you'd do it. You'd kill me then. To which, shamefully, all I could say was that he wasn't a dog or a horse, I stopped short of saying that it was because Hollis was my friend. This is not true, and he'd know it to be bullshit. Oh, and what's the difference, he said. How better are you and I than that? Dogs and horses don't drop bombs on each other, do they? He added. No, but th then why should I struggle, he went on. If the dog and the horse are ostensibly better than us, and you'd still be fine to off them, then do the bloody same to me, Logan. Don't make me beg you, please. As I sit here now, hours later and with Hollis passed out in the silent desert night, I still do not know what I should have said to that. I mumbled something about it not being right, that it was against the natural order of things, but it did nothing for his position. Are you a God-fearing man, Logan? He asked finally. I told Hollis that I wasn't, that God has never shown me any reason to believe in him, and he proceeded to lecture me on theism for some time, citing scripture and verses in some mad haze, evangelism spraying from him eloquently and spuriously in equal measure. He said something like, The Lord will judge us as he tests us. I will meet him soon and ask him why. Something like that. His eyes rolled into his skull afterwards. He groaned again in pain and asked me, Have I ever told you about what happened to my wife? Quite an interesting story. Then he became unconscious. As soon will I. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.